0: This podcast is supported by Siemens, your partner for industrial-grade AI.
1: So hello everybody and welcome to a new episode of our industrial AI podcast. My name is Robert Weber, and my guest today is Kees Snook from the Netherlands. He is a professor for computer science and he has several roles at once. Research at the University of Amsterdam, research at Atlas Lab and at the Qualcomm Lab, and one of the most important representatives on the topic of deep vision. Welcome, Kees. It's an honor to speak to you. Good morning.
0: Hello. Good morning, Robert. My pleasure to be here this morning. Is everything right or did I miss something? Uh, no, it's uh, more than uh, more than sufficient. Yes, thank you.
1: Let's first talk about the, the labs I mentioned, the, the Atlas Lab and the Qualcomm Lab. What is the Atlas Lab and what is the Qualcomm Lab? What are you
0: doing there? So the Atlas Lab is our collaboration with TomTom. With Tom. TomTom Tom is in the business of uh, map making and with the Atlas Lab, we are trying to, to enable uh, what we call high, high definition maps. So, so the goal is to, so TomTom Tom, uh, drives around in the world with cars collecting data of how the environment looks like and, and the goal is to transform these recordings into high definition maps that they, they can use for their, their business. Okay, so it's a navigation business, isn't it? It's the navigation uh, business, but also making giving insights in, in traffic beyond navigation of the car, so to say. So to create these high-definition map, new research is needed in computer vision, uh, in 3D computer vision and, and 2D computer vision to sort of like transfer these car rec- the recordings that these, these cars make while driving around. And to transfer these into these high definition maps, and this comes with RGB camera data, but also with uh, with lidar data, with point clouds, uh, and to make sense, uh, make sense of this, so to say. So the goal is for autonomous driving. That's one of the goals. Yes, so these high definition maps are, are very useful for autonomous driving. So aut- autonomous cars would need these maps to 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 reach their autonomy, so to say. Which role does AI play in this mapping? Well, so the AI is sort of like the tool to make sense of the data. To give you an example, how how to combine camera data with uh, LiDAR point uh, data and how can you infer that an object is indeed a car or that it is occluded or that you can sense the environment and, and identify all the objects of interest that the autonomous car at some point need to be aware of, so to say. And what is the approach are you guys taking? In these labs, these are very fundamental research. So what essentially what we're trying to do, we, so we are not making the product, right? That is not our goal. Uh, so the goal of the lab is to innovate and to come up with new AI tools, so to say. So think about a uh, new object detector, new semantic segmentation, new 3D point cloud uh, interpreters, uh, these kind of things. So that also in these labs, is very important to do knowledge transfer. So we transfer the knowledge of, The PhD students to the engineers, to the scientific engineers inside the company, in this case inside of TomTom. Because they they get this new knowledge, they also sort of like start to think, hey, wait a minute, for our own business, this could be a useful tool, or if we adapt it a little bit, we can bend it and sort of like help reach our own deliverables. So one thing is the PhD students do fundamental research. The research can be protected in patents, so that's also a benefit for the industry partner, in this case, TomTom, but also the knowledge exchange, so that the people inside of Tom. TomTom also get the new knowledge and, and, and exploit it uh, for the business case, so to say.
1: So what means deep research? Do you have an example what you are doing there? Deep, deep research or deep vision? You can switch to deep vision. If you use there deep vision, then we can go there, yeah.
0: Well, deep vision was the name we gave to one of our al- other cal- collaborations, which was the CUVA Lab with Qualcomm, a mobile chip company. And there the idea was mostly because we, we joined two research groups from the University of Amsterdam, one focusing on on machine learning and deep learning, and one traditionally more focused on on computer vision. And we essentially took a keyword from both. So the deep learning and the computer vision became deep vision. Uh, Well, the, the funny thing is that nowadays, when we started, it was not yet... Uh, the case. But nowadays, of course, computer vision without deep learning is is, is very hard to imagine, or in any case, hard to get published. So for vision now, everything is deep. But in in the lab, we do more than uh, we also do deep learning for general purpose domains. Uh, So we also consider uh, typical machine learning topics like optimization, spiking neural networks, federated learning, differential privacy, these kind of things without a vision component per se. So this is in the Qualcomm lab, right? Yeah, this is in the Qualcomm lab,
1: correct. Let's switch to this deep vision, is your main field of research. When we when we have the postcard, we see a lot of vision applications in the industry. We could talk about it every week, I think, about computer vision
0: solutions. So what is the difference you are working on? We do pretty much what other people do in the field as well. So so lately we have been very interested in in Transformers. I'm sure you have been discussing Transformers in one of your podcasts before so transformers are interesting in the sense that they have been originally designed for machine translation so a natural language processing application Uh, and what what people have been doing is is use those transformers as is so as defined for language and apply them to vision problems and my biggest surprise is that this sort of works out of the box so without changing or adapting it to the peculiarities of the vision modality, you can sort of like run a, a tool designed for language on a vision problem. Now, of course, vision is different from, from language. Uh, it already starts with the tokens, right? In, in, in language, you have the, the, the characters or the words in, in a sentence that you can tokenize, but in vision, this is quite different. And there are all kinds of problems that are unique to vision that you don't have uh, in language, like multi-scale uh, locality and, and, and translation so what we're trying to do now is to sort of like equip uh, transformers with, with inductive biases that come with the vision modality so that they are no longer so much dependent on huge amounts of, of data and compute, so as to say, to make them more uh, efficient. And how do you do that? So one thing we know is, I mean, computer vision has been re- revolutionized by uh, deep learning, but there have been many good ideas before deep learning in computer vision, too. Right, and there are many uh, inductive biases that people have studied that are very relevant also in the modern in in these modern days. So one of the things is, for example, in uh, if you dive into the depth of the of the transformer and you start to see how does this attention mechanism, this self attention mechanism work, you will see that in vision it doesn't make sense to treat each token as an individual uh, word. So what I mean to say is that what people are doing, they vectorize image features in exactly the same way as language tokens, uh, without taking the local connectivity of these tokens into account. So if you zoom in to a picture, you will see that neighboring pixels have a relationship. They are often very similar, and there cannot be huge, huge changes in the local area in an image. And by throwing this fact of nature, so to say, by, by throwing it away, you can compensate for it uh, using huge amounts of data, and that is what these the, the first vision transformers, at least, uh, did. They demonstrated, look, be competitive with uh, with convolutional neural networks, sort of the default in in vision. Uh, if we if we throw enough scale at it, so if we throw enough data and we show it enough examples, then it will find these regularities from the data. Our point has been well that that's great. We don't have the scale in the compute. Uh, that our friends at Google and, and and Meta have, so we have to uh, we have to be more clever with the resources we have. But what about if we inject these inductive biases from the start? Then then you need less data, and you will uh, it will also re- result in faster learning, so faster confidence of the of the algorithms. So this is what we have done in one of our recent recent papers, actually, for uh, for object detection in two D and three D. Do you s- see there a use case for this technology? for in- industrial
1: applications or is it
0: only research our focus is is only research of course i mean these are object this is an object detection tool that we have sort of like improved with this uh, box attention as we as we call it and there is this is a general purpose tool that that has been used by many and in many applications or many applications start with detecting what what are the objects in the image
1: when you spoke about the language topic and we see a lot of big language models do you see there's an option to develop big
0: vision models or is it doesn't make sense oh no definitely that is already happening yeah we live in interesting times because i think it's for the first time that or at least in the long time that i can remember uh, that vision is in, gets a lot of inspiration from natural language processing is it a surprise for you uh, yes and no no in the sense that uh, language processing has a much longer history so it's in that sense a more developed community you could say. Yes, in the sense that it was not typically the area where innovations that were very relevant for vision came from, uh, and that has changed. So the innovation came from the hardware, right? Yeah, or vision also got a lot of inspiration
1: from machine learning traditionally. Okay, but the, the, the technical invention always focused on hardware, the best camera, and getting better, 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 better.
0: Sure, sure. That was also an important uh, driver. So the, the the hardware enabled sort of like the innovation. But now it's sort of like we're, we're scanning the NLP community to, to, to get ideas for, for vision. And uh, one of the big developments in NLP is these huge language models, GTP tree, uh, a bird, uh, what have we, all these combinations. And what we are seeing now is that also these foundational models that combine vision and language uh, are becoming a big uh, thing. Um, you might have heard of uh, Clip from OpenAI. There's other model called uh, Line and Flamingo. So there are lots of models are being proposed. And these models are really, really powerful. Maybe you have heard about uh, Dali, Dali 2. Based on a text uh, prompt, it can generate an image. I think earlier this week uh, Facebook uh, released a tool text to
1: video if I
0: recall correctly.
1: Yes it, I saw it in,
0: on the on the social networks yeah. And it, this is sort of like the first tool that generates a very short video clip from a, from a text uh, snippet. So it's called uh, Make a Video. Yeah, now we're talking about
1: the big models. You mentioned Dali or Clip. We had an episode with the guys from Monolith AI. It's a little bit like Dali for engineers, what they are doing. I don't know if you know them. Um, They're from UK. But we have this big models, and these big models are, produced by companies you mentioned facebook google whatever OpenAI. what is your position as researchers what is your next step what are your focus i think 20 30 years ago it was your task to build these big models and now the the private companies are building these big models what is the research uh, perspective on big models what are your tasks to do
0: in the next years yeah this is a very good question and to be honest i struggle a bit Mm -hmm. uh, that's good uh, for me (laughs) with the question in the sense that these huge foundational models require a huge amount of data and huge amount of compute and we have quite some compute at the university of amsterdam so i can i can do i can do my research i do a lot of research on video so uh, that also takes compute but i cannot use all my resources to replicate a, a model like clip I simply cannot cannot afford it, and I also don't think I want it. Right, so that I would occupy my cluster for a few months to use all the GPUs to replicate uh, a model of OpenAI. So, as an individual researcher with, with 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 the group, I don't see a reason to compete along these lines. On the other hand, these models are a big resources, and and we use them for our research. I also don't want to be dependent on models that are provided by industry from which i don't really know what is the internals of the model so yeah so is the is should i invest in in, in huge compute and try to build my own models anyway uh should i unite uh, the entire country of the netherlands to say we're going to build dutch foundational models that's a uh, dutch vision model yeah that that could be or do i unite uh, europe or, or, or join uh, an effort that tries to unite europe and, and to build european foundational models from people in academia that could be so I, I haven't figured it out yet.
1: But I think it's a problem for research because private companies are doing research and what is the research for the universities?
0: Maybe we can find flaws in these models or identify why they are uh, not trustworthy and maybe come up with ways to improve these models along certain uh, dimensions or to to hint at where do they where are they brittle where do they fail where can they generalize over uh, unseen domains um I think that this is the topic explainable
1: AI for research, but I think in my opinion researchers don't want to explain something from an, for another. they want to invent something huh
0: Well there are also researchers who want to want to explain but I am probably more in the in the other camp myself. Because I, I can also be satisfied with an algorithm that is uh, not explainable. I mean, if uh, I designed an algorithm that tells me that I have a certain disease, much more certain uh, than my doctor, I would go for the algorithm, right? Even if, it, if I cannot explain how it got to its decision. Having said that, uh, replicating these big foundational models is not really doable for a university professor. Uh, so then you have to ask either new questions, uh, join forces, or debug them and hint at fatal flaws. Let's talk about a
1: little bit about the future of vision. What kind of application, what kind of technology uh, you are looking for for the next five years when we talk about computer vision?
0: Five years is a really long time span. Two, two years. Uh, I mean, things, things change so fast in vision these days that it's really hard to look ahead for five years. So let's take two years. So a few problems I identify. So one is that in vision, still the common practice is to train and test on all data sets which have sort of a similar distribution. So that means what it what the algorithm sees at test time is quite similar to what it has seen uh, during training. Uh, for example, I, I, I train my self-driving car on images from Germany, uh, right? So from all over Germany, it has seen all all the surroundings uh, there, and now I'm going to test it in uh, Namibia. In Africa now, I can tell you it will fail on the first encounter of, of a rock or an object it has never seen in Germany. So how how can we at- attack distribution shift problems? Artificial is data is a possibility. So so this is a real problem of, of deep learning networks because it learns at the end it learns correlations in the data. Uh, so it has difficulty uh, handling correlations it has never encountered. Now how can you make sure that uh, unseen? correlations are still processed in the right way well one way is to use more data Uh, more data you can say if you're google or meta you just uh, collect more uh, data Uh, an alternative is to use synthetic uh, data so that is a promising way but it's not really i have not seen it really working at scale Uh, i think it still needs more more research what is the problem do you think yeah, it's 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 artificial. So it is. I think the realism of the artificial data is too far off still from what we see in the real world. But progress in in creating artificial data with like these Dali two and uh, diffusion based models is going really quickly. Uh, so I can imagine that generating data soon will be a very effective tool for deep learning. The other way is to adapt the the algorithm to prepare it for things it has never seen. So that can also be done. So this is a typical uh, work in in domain adaptation and domain generalization. Uh, Recently, a new line of work that I I like a lot is is called uh, test time adaptation, that you use the image in this case, for example, that you encounter at test time and you start to do some uh, some inference uh, on it. Of course, you cannot retrain on the image, but you can still get useful information from the image that allows you to adapt your model in such a way that it is better prepared uh, to classify the, the unseen image. How do you do that? For example, by using a self supervised uh, loss on your, on your test image. And in that way you can sort of like uh, update your original model in such a way that without using any, any labeling or, or interaction, just by looking at the data and, and inferring uh, the, the structure in the data uh, you can use it to adapt your model and there are other tools you can can use there uh too do you focus on this technology yes well we find out domain generalization and, and and using also test time information in general uh, an, an interesting approach so we have been doing research on this dimension the other topic that i think that remains of interest is what can we learn uh, not from uh, many data but from little data right so though uh, we have doing been doing a lot in in, in few shot learning, uh, so that I think remains uh, important. So
1: the few shot learning is uh, connected to the to the guys from language processing because they also do that.
0: Yeah, everybody's doing that, uh, so f- uh, for sure. So, but you can do few shot learning uh, if you have a big foundational model. But I, I would like to do it without big foundational model because the how you want to do that then? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because else, I mean, that's easy, right? The big foundational model has seen so many uh, examples already. Uh, yeah then with future that's that's simple but what can you do without so th- that is a topic of interest uh we, but how do you want to do that without a big model so we, we're looking into into meta learning meta learning approaches so, so learning to learn so that you have a solved classification task in this couple of times different classification task and then you start to sort of like infer meta knowledge what is the meta knowledge for this classification task so if i have than uh, a few, a, a, a new classification task with a few examples. I, I know because I've seen so many classification tasks before that I can also solve this classification task, although it is a slightly different one uh, than the ones I've encountered. Uh, also, the, the role of memory is interesting here. Sure, but the memory is not very big. The memory is, no, it cannot be very big because I'll, I'll go big, big uh, back back to foundational models. So, so, in a way, you could say, how can we constrain? all the dimensions of foundational models and, and what can we then still get out of it, so to say. Another topic of interest, uh, self-supervised learning, so learning without any labels, so you exploiting uh, simply the, the, the structure in, in, in the data. Very interesting problem. The the other one is uh, causality, uh, going away from learning correlations. Uh, causality cells can also attack this the domain generalization problem. That is an interesting, uh, we are still investigating transformers. Uh, so, so that is also uh, of interest, and I think that's
1: very interesting. What you mentioned, I think, ten minutes before, without tr- with the with the transformers, that's very interesting. I think also for the industry, yeah,
0: yeah, 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 definitely, definitely, uh, and especially for the maybe not for the big industry players, maybe for the medium sized and smaller sized companies who also want to do something with AI and don't want to be dependent on Google and Meta, right? So want to do it themselves. So that is a that is, of course, a big market for AI. Oh, and fairness and, and trustworthiness of of algorithms in in general. That is a big topic.
1: You mentioned new algorithms. I think uh, ten or three minutes ago to uh, establish new algorithms. What about r- robust algorithms? Um, what is is it? A, is this a search a research field in in Amsterdam in your in your group?
0: Oh, definitely. Definitely no, yeah. Robustness. So one of the dimensions of r- robustness is to this generalization across domains, right? So when the shift of uh, of the test samples, the distribution shift, does not resemble uh, uh, the training uh, examples anymore, so that 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 is all about robustness. And also learning with a few uh, labeled examples is also about robustness. So so robustness is is, is definitely a big topic. And not only in my lab, but also in many other labs in, 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 in Amsterdam, actually.
1: Finally, I would love to learn why there's so much going on in Amsterdam, because we had an episode with Sepp Hochreiter and he told us you have to interview the guys from Amsterdam because there's so much, so much going on in Amsterdam right now in terms of AI. Why is Amsterdam the, the role model for Europe when it comes to AI?
0: Oh yeah, that's that. That's a big question. Well, I, I I've been thinking about this um, myself. I think I think there are several reasons. I think the f- the first one is that we have two universities in Amsterdam, and and both of them have bachelor and master AI uh, program, and they have this already since the since the nineties.
1: Since the nineties, okay. Since
0: the nineties, I believe that in Europe, Edinburgh was the first university to have a, a bachelor and master program on artificial intelligence. And both the University of Amsterdam and the Free uh, Free University of Amsterdam followed soon soon after. So we have been doing AI for quite for quite a long time. I think that is that is reason uh, reason number one. And then reason number two is that we have also been doing public private partnerships uh, in the Amsterdam uh, region also already for a very long uh, time. So we were used to working with uh, with industrial partners.
1: And I think I think the Netherlands are investing a lot per capita in, in AI, I think. Uh,
0: no, that is not true. That is no, that is not true. We are lagged behind in Europe. We are the, the idiot of Europe in that sense. Everybody tells me that. Zepp told me that in Austria, in Netherlands, it's the same, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, the government has, no, we are the only country in Europe without a uh, serious AI program. Okay. So nothing is invested in AI uh, research by the government. It's, it's really poor. Okay. I, th- I thought the Netherlands is a role model by investing in AI. Uh, no. So maybe that is the reason why we have been focusing so strongly on uh, public-private for a long time in Amsterdam, because that is where we get most of our funding. So wh- one more thing. Um, I-, I think what was also important for AI in Amsterdam was that Max Welling came back from, from US uh, to Amsterdam to, to strengthen the machine learning research, at least in, in the University of Amsterdam. And then Essentially, what then the deep learning revolution started and we had all the ingredients in place because our research was heavy on uh, data-based machine learning, so to say. Not necessarily neural networks. It was not really a big topic of of focus uh, in Amsterdam, but we were doing machine learning based on on, on data in NLP, in information retrieval, in computer vision. Uh, So we were essentially... Perfectly prepared for deep learning. Uh, so when deep learning happened, uh, so to say, was born. Yeah. Well, yeah, or was revitalized. It was born already several times, and we were ready for it. I think that was sort of like the uh, what what happened. We were all, all these individual disciplines that had their own way of doing things, all uh, adopted uh, deep learning, and 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 collectively that made us very very competitive and, and interesting. And because of our history of public private partnerships and our big talent pool uh, it was also natural to talk with all these big uh, companies and then w- what happened was that in 2014 qualcomm was, was one of the first big big tech companies to come to amsterdam they acquired a startup company small startup company that i was also involved with new vision doing uh, visual recognition and also mobile phones and qualcomm established qualcomm amsterdam and they noticed that the the, the startup had a close connection with the university they wanted uh, maintain that also for their office. And then the, the CUVA lab was born, so to say. I did my research and I thought that the city of Amsterdam is also pushing the
1: AI topic for the population with algorithm registry and more. Do you, how do you get this politician to do that?
0: Yeah, this is a more recent uh, development. Um, well, you have to realize that besides the two universities in Amsterdam, we also have a University of Applied Sciences, uh, which is, of course, also very much... Uh, into ai so they have a big responsible ai uh, team we have uh, uh, two academic hospitals in in amsterdam uh, that have recently merged into into one uh, even bigger one and they have been doing a lot of medical imaging and and artificial intelligence uh, for that and we have a national cancer institute also in the municipality so we have a lot of knowledge institutes that are uh, very deep into, into artificial intelligence uh, research. Then Amsterdam has many tech companies. So uh, Qualcomm has an office. Google has an office. Microsoft. Bosch is there. Microsoft. Bosch is, is there. But also Booking, uh, TomTom, Elsevier, uh, Atien. Atien, I'm not sure whether you know, but it's a, it's a big financial uh, platform. Um, so they are, they are huge. So this is huge uh, in the service industry uh, using AI. And what we also have is besides, we do not only have deep technical depth, but also anchoring this into broad societal breadth. So really sort of like making the AI applicable in society and also thinking about it. I think that's important. Yeah. That's very important. We, we, and we have this, we have this cross in Amsterdam and because the, the universities are not technical universities, these are uh, broad universities. So we have all the sciences uh, on board. So we have a very strong humanities, political sciences, uh, and, and so on. And these are all also very interested uh, in AI and, and, and they provide the fresh perspective. Like, Hey, yeah, you can also sort of like, you can imagine this algorithm. That's great. But what if we're going to apply this in society at large? What, what does that mean? Right? So we have this discussion going on and I think that is uh, what makes it very attractive. And also the municipality has now recognized, Hey, AI is a, is here to stay. This is a big team and Amsterdam uh, can play an important role on the topic in, in, in Europe.
1: Keith, it was a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for your time and greetings to the Netherlands. Thank you so much and have a great day.